I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Sivavadi Anatha. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Well, just a few months ago, we thought we were through the storm of COVID-19. We thought we were done with all of those months of wondering how students of all ages were going to connect with their lessons and with their teachers. Everything was back on its way to normal. Yeah, well, n- not not yet. The new Omicron variant makes it much easier to contract the illness. It seems that the symptoms may be relatively mild for those who are vaccinated, but many more people are getting sick. They're missing work or school for a week or more. And this is disrupting many areas of life. So probably we should just be prepared for the long term. Variants will sweep through perhaps every year, giving us a reason each time to work or learn remotely. Right. And, you know, we realized over the past two years that we have a problem. Millions of Americans, billions of people around the world lack the level of data connectivity they would otherwise need to be fully effective workers, citizens, teachers, and students. I mean, why haven't we fixed that problem yet? That's a great question and an agonizing one, Siva. Expanding broadband access can be a real political hot potato in state houses across the United States. Well, our guest today has thought, taught, and written a lot about this. We have Christopher Ali in the studio with us. He's our colleague here at the UVA Media Studies Department and one of the foremost voices supporting public policies that would better connect Americans online. He's been studying and advocating for state-funded expansion of high-speed internet access for those who can't get it, either because they live in rural areas that lack broadband or because they can't afford it. Chris, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. So, Chris, 120 million Americans lack access to the Internet at speeds that we would define as broadband. Now, certainly this demonstrates some stark digital inequality, and we can layer that on top of all of the other inequality in America. But is this just a matter of economic opportunity and development, or is it also a factor in the health of our democracy? It is absolutely a factor in the health of our democracy. Um, I mean, economic development is a component of it. Of course, economic development is part of a democracy as well. Mm. But if you also think about broadband access in terms of students, right, we know from great research that a student without broadband will probably have half a letter grade different Mm. than a student with broadband access at home, right? We can think about new and different abilities to vote. The military, for instance, has been experimenting with online voting, and, and we have some experience here as well. I mean, all of this requires a high-speed, affordable broadband connection. And this is one of the things that gets, I think, missed when we think about broadband purely as a consumer good or a market good. I mean, broadband is so much more than just a toaster. And I like my toaster fine, but if I was going to sacrifice a toaster for an internet connection, it's going to be access to the internet. So like a lot of teachers, I spent a lot of 2020 and 2021 uh, teaching online. And, you know, here in Charlottesville, where there is a, a major university and a number of major hospitals and reasonable urban density, you know, I didn't find it too difficult to jump online and teach on Zoom. Most of our students, not all, but most of our students uh, found that they could connect. But if you just go a few miles outside of Charlottesville, uh, you'll find a very different picture. And in fact, 
the, the picture of the state of Virginia is probably not so dissimilar to other states around the country. Around Washington, D.C. and around Richmond, there's high connectivity. But in rural areas just outside of those uh, those big urban spaces, connectivity dwindles. Just talk a little bit about the nature of that gap, its social connotations, how it came to be. Um, what is it doing to us as a, as a culture, as a polity? Uh, absolutely happy to. Um, though, if I could uh, be so bold as to push back on two things you said, mm. we don't know the connectivity levels at the University of Virginia. We've never studied it. We have no concept of the digital divide. And I'll give you an example. I ran a survey of media studies majors. We're a, a huge major, right, in, in, in the humanities. 50% of students who responded expressed concerns with their internet connection when they went home during the pandemic. Mm. 50% of one of the largest majors in the humanities. So, I mean, that's, that's more anecdotal than it is to statistically significant, but it begs the question, what is UVA's responsibility, what is all higher education institutions' responsibility to its un- and underconnected students? Especially a public university. Especially a public university, right? And we've seen, there's been some great experiments uh, throughout the country with universities, for instance, subsidizing broadband access or providing hotspots. Um, we haven't done that, but that's maybe a different story. Uh, the other question is the rural-urban divide. I mean, certainly what we're seeing in rural America is a lack of infrastructure, but in urban America, we also have to understand that there's a, there's a connectivity issue, both in terms of affordability, and that af certainly exists in rural America as well, but also in terms of under-connection, right? One of the major issues we're seeing with urban centers is that they've been built out with subpar technologies. And so people who thought they were paying, you know, $100 a month for what they thought was high-speed broadband access suddenly conked out when the whole neighborhood went on Zoom. Mm -hmm. That's often an urban problem because the networks haven't been upgraded. So we're, we're kind of flailing in a number of different areas. There's the infrastructure, getting connections in the ground or in the air, which is oftentimes a rural issue. Then there's upgrading underconnected areas. And then, of course, there is the problem with affordability. On average, the monthly subscription for broadband in the United States is $84 a month. I mean, that is ridiculous. And we're seeing this factor into so many different things. I mean, one of the awful realizations during the pandemic was this stark digital divide. And if there's any bright spot that came out of it, what I'm hoping is that our elected officials have finally all gotten together and realized that broadband is not a luxury. Mm -hmm. It is a necessity. Some have gone so far as to call it a utility, which has some interesting legal connotations, but also a right. The major question, though, and this is a, the question that's being battled on, on Capitol Hill right now, is what exactly is broadband? Right. That, uh, you know, uh, and here in the United States, we define broadband by speed. It's currently defined as 25 megabits per second down, 3 megabits per second upload. That's maybe fine if you can get it for one person living in an apartment. But if you're a family, if you're a high intensity user, if you, if you live in a neighborhood in which a lot of people are jumping on Zoom, 25, 3 is not good enough. And so far, our policies about getting broadband out into the hinterland, so to speak, have been about just getting something that's good enough, when really we need to be thinking, what are our broadband needs, not two years ago, but what will our broadband needs be 10 years from right, now? Right, right. Broadband is expensive. Broadband requires public funding because it is, you know, what economists might call a market failure. I mean, there is not enough people living in rural communities mm -hmm. to merit a private company going out there. 
there. And we've ceded broadband to the private market. And you know what? If the private market was going to solve this problem, it would have already done it. It mm-hmm. needs public intervention. And then there's the infrastructure package. $65 billion coming down the pipelines, uh, $42.5 billion of which will go specifically to broadband deployment. That's getting wires in the ground, getting them on telephone poles, using fixed wireless, um, and then $14 billion for uh, an affordability program, which will subsidize broadband for low-income households at $30 a month. Gotcha. Let me follow up with you on that, because while it sounds good that we get a a number uh, coming out of Washington, it doesn't always mean that that money hits the ground. What does that tell us about how complicated rural broadband has become as it's implemented through our federal system with a lot of corporations involved? That's a great question. Um, and just uh, to get a little bit of context, between 2009 and 2017, the federal government allocated and distributed $47 billion for broadband, mm. which would suggest that we should be pretty close to solving the digital divide. And of course, we know the digital divide is actually growing. It's not shrinking. So uh, what is getting in the way of this this massive federal commitment and then getting future-proof connectivity on the ground? The major problem here has been that we've had a a policy apparatus at the federal level that has privileged the largest telecommunications providers at the expense of much more local, regional, much more nimble players. And uh, here's an example. In 2015, the Federal Communications Commission uh, had at its disposal the Universal Service Fund of $5 billion a year to support broadband in rural areas. $5 $5 billion a year. That's a huge amount of money. Um, instead of you know having an open call for bidders, instead of you know uh, uh, making it kind of a more equitable process, it selected the 10 largest telecommunications companies, gave them a dump truck full of money, and said, we trust you to connect the country. What did they do? They connected the country to the lowest legal parameters that they could. So for instance, um, the speed they had to connect the country or their areas was at 10, 1, 10 megabits per second download, 1 megabit per second upload. At that speed, they didn't have to be deploying fiber. They could just be using telephone wires. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? They deployed telephone wires and pocketed the rest of the money as profit. A company like CenturyLink, for instance, gets $505 million a year in federal subsidy. And some other companies actually haven't even made their commitments, but they're still eligible for federal support. So one of the major, I think, findings of my work has been really... The best broadband is local broadband. Mm. By that, I mean local providers, regional providers, telephone cooperatives, electric cooperatives. They're the ones who are seeing broadband as an investment in their communities rather than that a quarterly return on investment. Chris, is there is there a state in the United States that's doing it right, that's a model state? Absolutely. And that state is Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota needs to be the national model for how to roll out broadband. Mm-hmm. And and here's why. Uh, over a decade ago, they established a office of broadband, right? So, and that office acts as, as not only they had some money to do grants, but also as kind of an information clearinghouse and best practices. Because one thing we know about the digital divide, it is not a cookie cutter solution. It's not going to be just AT&T solving it. It's not going to be just a county solving it. It's not going to be a cooperative. It's not going to be just fiber. It's not going to be just wireless. It, this 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 whole kind of all hands on deck approach needs to happen, and Minnesota really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I spent a bunch of time in Minnesota for my book. And one place I spent a bunch of time in is Rock County, Minnesota, which is the nutcracker capital of the Midwest, population of ten thousand people in the southwest pocket of the state, so bordering South Dakota and Iowa. Rock County uh, got a five million dollar grant from uh, from the state of Minnesota. They bonded themselves. 
because they in Minnesota counties are allowed to do that for infrastructure needs. Um, and then they found a telephone cooperative in South Dakota to lay the network. Rock County, Minnesota, population 10,000, has 99.93% fiber to the home pass by. That is amazing. And they did that because of local digital champions and a state that had the foresight to be able to support connectivity like that and projects like that. Every state in this country, especially when states are going to become more and more vital to processing that infrastructure money, every state in this country needs to look at Minnesota and what they're doing. Some have even called it the Minnesota model, mm. and I am in full endorsement of that. So, so Chris, if, if Minnesota's doing really well and Virginia's not doing so well and Ohio's not doing so well, you know, why doesn't the federal government set basic standards and use the Minnesota model or something close to it and say, if you're going to get our money, you have to do it this way. I mean, why isn't that on the table? Uh, there's lobbying. Mm. Uh, but the more serious answer is we had that. In 2010, we had something called the National Broadband Plan, which was promising, uh, which set a goal of within 10 years to have 100 million people connected at 100 megabits per second. We blew through that. We, we did not hit any of the benchmarks set by the National Broadband Plan because it's not legally binding. It's a policy recommendation. But it was a set of standards based on numbers, speed and whatnot, right? But not a model for how to deploy, right? Which is what Minnesota has figured out. Right. One of, one of the other problems is um, we actually don't know how many people are on and underconnected. Mm. Uh, and, and here's why. The Federal Communications Commission is responsible for mapping broadband. And, and they do that through something called Form 477, which if anyone is familiar with broadband policies, this is quite infamous. And nobody is. Uh, go no, ahead. <laughs> nobody. Yeah. But um, internet service providers have to report on Form 77 twice a year who they are connecting. The problem is they don't have to report this at the address level. They report this at the census block level. Now, a census block in Manhattan might be a couple of streets. Here in uh, in Charlottesville, it's a neighborhood or two neighborhoods or three neighborhoods, right? In rural communities, it can be, you know, in Alaska, there's a census block that's 8,000 square miles, mm. right? Because uh, it's dependent on population. According to the Federal Communications Commission, so long as one building in a census block has broadband or can have broadband within 10 business days, the entire census block is considered 100% served with broadband. What are the implications here? That census block is then ineligible for any future federal support. Oh my gosh. So you can be served on the map, but not actually served in practice. It absolutely benefits the large national providers who can have that beautiful blue map that, that AT&T has or the pink map. And they can say, look, we serve everybody because they might serve one building in one census block and that census block therefore gets a check mark. How can we make sure everybody has broadband until we actually know who doesn't have broadband? And that's one of the major uh, political fights going on right now. The Federal Communications Commission has been ordered to change their methodology to the credit of now Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. They're moving as quickly as they can. But you're asking big telecommunications companies to volunteer more information than they uh, have ever done so before. So it is, a, it is a political fight. And we can't do anything unless we have accurate maps. So why are we uh, obsessed with the wire coming out of a wall and and fiber optic cable being dug into the ground right now? I mean, shouldn't we be thinking that uh, the rollout of 5G, which is a global project, it seems, offers us a much more efficient way to skip over the infrastructure problem, right? We're just building towers rather than digging in the ground. We're uh, taking advantage of mobile connectivity, which is ubiquitous, if not universal. Uh, you know, it seems to me like that would be a better plan. 
maybe doesn't solve the kids on Zoom problem in 2022, but it might be a more anticipatory way of imagining our information infrastructure five or 10 years from now, right? It, it seems to me to be a better way to address the challenges of India or Egypt, uh, even if Canada gets left out because they still have pine trees, although maybe not for long with climate change. <laughs> you know, um, uh, it's, it's it's a great question, and, and and certainly the growth of five G is interesting. The the problem though is that not all five G is created equal. Right. And and one of the great uh, lines, and this is from uh, Deb Sosha, who who used to head Next Century Cities, as now is Tennessee, and she told me that wireless is just one wire less. 5G still requires a fiber optic backhaul, mm. right? You still need wires in the ground to connect that tower. The other problem with 5G is that 5G operates on three different bands of frequencies. There's low band, mid band, and high band. Only high band 5G is able to compare to the connectivity we would get with a fiber optic cable. The problem with high band 5G is that you need a repeater every 800 feet because the signal is so weak, it can't pass through a human body, it can't turn a corner, it can't go through a wall. So it might work in, in Manhattan where, yeah, you've got a light post every 800 feet and you could slap on what's called a small cell. It is not going to work in Charlottesville. It's too spread out. Low band 5G, which is what, for instance, T-Mobile is rolling out, right? When you see that bright pink map and, and 5G is everywhere. Low band 5G, the user experience with low band 5G will be no different than 4G. It really isn't any different. So you know, there is going to be a wireless solution. The, the solution to the digital divide is not always going to be about fiber. It just it just can't be, right? But but 5G will not be the answer in this country. You could say the exact same thing about Starlink. Starlink is a, a SpaceX's a satellite broadband company. SpaceX, of course, is famous because it's founded by Elon Musk, right? Mm. Um, and what Starlink is, it's, they are operating what's called a low Earth orbital satellite network, LEO satellites. And that's different um, if, if any of your listeners here have conventional satellite internet provided by, let's say, Viasat or HughesNet, you know, I, I, dollars to donuts, they're pretty frustrated with their service. It's right. super expensive. It's super slow and laggy. You've got these data caps. It's, it's just, it's, it's internet, but it's not broadband. What Elon Musk promised, what Starlink promised, is that because the satellites are closer to the ground and because there's more of them, they can offer a fiber-like user experience. <laughs> That's originally what was happening in 2018. That's what it was promised. And then we saw, well, some satellites got launched and then it wasn't going to be fiber broadband for everybody. Then it became good broadband for some. <laughs> now it's good enough broadband for fewer, right? So again, we got to, I think, dial down the hype with Starlink. Starlink will play a role. They're doing mm. some good work in connecting really, really hard to reach areas, but it's nothing like fiber. So right now, uh, if you're with Starlink, first of all, it's a $500 down payment and then at least $100 a month. So it's quite expensive. And the user experience you're going to get is about 100 megabits per second download, 20 megabits per second upload, which is comparable to like what Comcast offers. So it's good. It's really, it's good. But it's, again, looking at the hype from 2018 where Musk is saying, I'm going to connect the world. What he's saying in 22 is, I'm going to connect hard to reach areas. Mm. Big difference. Wait, are you saying Elon Musk is... Failing to deliver on his promises? To, yes, right. <laughs> is, is practicing hyperbole? Uh, <laughs> only, only, only slightly. Only, only, only slightly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, let me uh, bring this topic back around to the question of democracy and participation in public life. You know, for this much of this conversation, we've been assuming that if you connect citizens to, you know, more powerful broadband access, uh, that's good for democracy. But 
One could make the argument that, at least over the last 10 or 20 years, the opposite has happened. More people have access to information, uh, but they are increasingly sharing the kinds of information which have served to undermine democratic practices and commitments. And the extraordinary metastasizing of the internet as a source of disinformation, of conspiracy theories, of a dark space that can be used to explain bad things everywhere. Uh, this has also served, we, we all agree, has served to weaken or to challenge our commitment, not just to democracy, but really what we think about as truth and what we think about as science and information. What do you make of this? Is more broadband basically a good thing for our civic health? Or do we also have to continue to think about the, the, the ways it's exacerbated uh, grievances and fears and anxieties of the modern age? I mean, that's a great question. And my my kind of first glib response is that none of this is broadband's fault. Broadband is an infrastructure. It's like blaming a highway for a car accident, right? Um, broadband is a net positive, right? There is nothing um, moral or amoral about uh, a wire in the ground. I mean, so, you know, do we have problems with the way in which information, false information, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation is being spread? Yes, we do. Um, is that a reason to slow down broadband deployment? Absolutely not. It is doing way more good, uh, in my opinion, than it is undermining democracy. Again, just look at what's happened in the last two years. None of us could do our jobs, which means that none of us would be able to participate in the conversations that we enjoy participating in. So I, I don't think concerns over the spread of, of misinformation should factor in, to be perfectly honest, into the conversation about whether or not we need to get broadband in the ground because communities are worse off without a broadband connection. So the wires in the ground, wires in the air isn't doing anything in and of themselves, but the lack of them is certainly hurting particularly rural areas, particularly tribal areas. So wait, Chris, I mean, you said that you know, highways aren't the problem with traffic accidents, but in fact they are. I mean, we, we had many millions more deaths because we built high-speed highways where where people could drive 65, 75, 85 miles an hour, right? Uh, before we had highways, we had very few automobile deaths. If you're driving 10, 20 miles an hour, you're just not killing that many people. Now, that said, look, when we look at what we've done over the past 20, 25 years, building out more and more speed, layering on audio and video to everything we do, I actually have an argument, and I've, I've written about it at some length, that this has been very bad for human minds, very bad for democracy, very bad for community, and that we were all better off when our connectivity was limited to the speed at which sharing text was about the best we could do. And we didn't have these algorithmically driven engines that put things in front of us. Now, we're never going to go back to that, right? But but I'm not convinced that broadband in general is good for human beings, good for learning, good for democracy. Uh, but what are we stuck with? I mean, what, how should we be looking at this problem? We have to be looking at this problem through the lens of equity. Hmm. Um, absolutely. Right now, we've got patchworks of connectivity. Uh, we've got rural folks who are paying upwards of 37% more and then for worse connections okay. than urban peers, right? We've got folks who are paying hundreds of dollars a month for subpar technology. We need to ensure that our students, that our workforce is well-equipped. That means broadband. You know, a, a study found that those with a high-speed internet connection at home are more likely to social distance than those without. Think about it. It means that you could, you could use Instacart <laughs> to get your groceries, right, versus going to the grocery store. Um, 
you know, Reverend L. Sharpton and, and FCC Commissioner Jeffrey Stark wrote a piece saying that broadband access was a civil right. You know, you've got the European Union, you've got the uh, United Nations calling it a human right, right? This is not for naught. This is not, they're not being disingenuous. And I don't think they're speaking in hyperbole here. So, yes, do we have a problem with algorithms? We do. Do we have a problem with with wealth infiltrating our telecommunication system where the wealthy are getting, uh, you know, millimeter wave 5G and, and fiber optics because they can afford $20,000 a mile and pay for it privately? Yes, we do. That is that is a massive political economic problem. So we need to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself when we're about to spend $65 billion. Um, we need to ensure that there are rules of the road, so to speak, to use that highway analogy, um, that are put into place to make sure that the folks who need high-speed broadband, who want high-speed broadband, have access to it and can afford it. But let me put it another way, which is the same same yeah. concern. On highways, you have to have a driver's license to use them. I mean, right? But we can't do that. We can't regulate. Well, but least we can't this, do that with this because right. it's the First Amendment. So the like question the is: the First Amendment prevents any reasonable regulation of these spaces. Right. And and I mean, I can talk about we need to reinterpret the First Amendment. Um, but I'm not an expert in this area. That's getting into me pontificating and wishing we were more like right. Canada no, with responsible Canadians speech. Canadians are always telling Americans how to live. Canadians are always invading us. We don't have free speech more in Canada. Canadian right? cultural imperialism. <laughs> So, so this is not a technology problem. This is a policy problem. Absolutely. Broadband actually is not about technology or markets. Broadband is about people, right? It is a question of policy and a question of politics. And that's where things get tricky. Well, Christopher Ali, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Christopher Ali is an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Media Localism, The Policies of Place, and the new book, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. Hi, I'm Jane Frankel, an intern on the show. We wanted to let you know about a cool new project from the Democracy Group. It's a set of podcast channels with shows from across the whole network organized by topic. You can look up episodes from D&D and all of our sister shows. They're organized around themes like voting rights, racial justice, misinformation, climate change, and much, much more. Just go to democracygroup.org and scroll down. You'll find links to each topic with audio from acclaimed guests like Ezra Klein, Madeleine Albright, Andrew Yang, Serge Popovich, and Elizabeth Warren. While you're at it, let us know about any other topics that you'd like the network to curate for its audience. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. Well, Steve, it turns out Democracy in Danger had its own infrastructure week. Yeah, yeah. What did we learn? I mean, is broadband good for democracy? It sounds like it is, but it also seems like there are many other issues that are involved. I mean, it's a fascinating way to understand the sort of tension points in our society right now. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, as I've said, I actually think broadband is bad for democracy, but inequality is also bad for democracy. And Chris's argument, and I think it's a strong one, is that 
as long as some of us are going to have access to the full range of opportunities in society, the full range of opportunity to communicate with our leaders, to make our opinions known, to connect with each other, to learn about the world, then by all means, we all should have that opportunity, right? So in this case, equality trumps whatever weird media theory thing is informing my own grumpiness about broadband. Siva, let me ask you a question since you've written a lot about this issue. In some institutions and in some countries, we're hearing people talk about connectivity as a human or civil right. Do you buy that? Do you think that's a, the right way to think about access to the Internet? I mean, we, we've had earlier discussions of human rights in terms of culture and in terms of the freedom to connect with one's culture, the freedom to be a cultural citizen the freedom to represent one's culture. And look, fundamentally, to be cultural is to be connected. So it is of a part with that longer human rights emphasis on culture. By the way, that whole idea is absent from American thoughts about rights, about policy, and about human rights. It's the sort of conversation that happens in Australia or Canada or Ghana or South Africa, where cultural policy is much more explicit than it is in the United States. Now, you know, when you think about broadband as a policy issue, in this country, we always make it about economic development, right? About entrepreneurship, right? But we could look at it as cultural policy. We could look at it in terms of uh, an opportunity to help communities flourish fully, to help communities hang together, identify themselves and represent themselves and, and explore their own histories, their own identities in a fuller way. You know, if we wanted to include things like communication policy, broadband policy as cultural policy, we might have a much better set of decisions coming out of Washington, D.C. Yeah, maybe we could look at it through the lens of human development mm -hmm. and in that sense, consider it as necessary in the same way that public health uh, rules and regulations are necessary, though, to be honest, the United States doesn't have a particularly good no. record of doing that. <laughs> Not either. a model. No. <laughs> but but I think this is a, a new way of thinking about uh, access to the Internet, not simply as can I get my download speed faster, but rather what am I going to do with this right. good once I have it? How is it going to affect me and my neighbors and my, my life and my family? So look, as we construct a media system and a media policy for the rest of the 21st century, we should be putting democracy first. Right? We shouldn't make democracy an afterthought in this. And I think that's our big error, that we've already rushed one-fifth of the way through the 21st century, thinking of these things as purely commercial enterprises, as purely instruments of economic development and wealth distribution or wealth creation. We really have to put democracy first as we make big decisions about what our communication system should be like. That's all we have this week on Democracy in Danger. Next time, we'll dig deeper on some thorny political topics right here in the Old Dominion with another University of Virginia colleague and member of the House of Delegates, Sally Hudson. People are right to be losing faith in government. I don't think that they're wrong to wonder whether their votes really matter. And that's what scares me most. There's a lot more coming your way this season as we hone in, not just on threats to democracy, but on ways we might repair government for and by the people. 
Read up on our guests and find background material on all our shows at dindanger.org. And stay in touch. Tag us on Twitter at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengal with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Sydney Halliman edits the show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We are distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. Until next time. Thank you.